Hello, this is Just Allen for RadioKingston.org. And our show today on Conversations, we welcome a very well-known, we could even say famous magician, Peter Samuelson, who I've watched perform for many years, who I know, and uh, who I really admire. So let's welcome Peter Samuelson. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. It's really great to be here. And uh, I, I have to say that, you know, this respect and admiration uh, and pleasure at having a friendship with you over the course of all these years has been something that I hold dear. So. Well, thank you very much oh, for that. But let's start at the beginning, okay. Peter. Let's find out a little about you before we get to all of the very exciting and interesting sure. things you have to tell us. Uh, tell us about your early childhood, where you came from, maybe a little about your parents, education, and how you developed into this actually world-traveling uh, magic career that you've built uh, for yourself. You know, I think that it's really quite um, quite delightful that coming out of a, uh, a family who were refugees from Europe uh, and still having family over there and traveling there even as a child back to visit family in Switzerland at this point now, uh, opened my eyes to the cultures and the delights of experiencing other ways of thinking and other cuisines and other sights and visions so that when the opportunity arose in my adult life to incorporate that into a performing or into a travel schedule that was part of my work, I seized on that with delight. So my parents, actually, as I said, were refugees. They arrived in 1941, arriving exactly eight years to the day prior to my birth on June 3rd, 1941. They had met in Switzerland, where my father was a mathematician studying at the ETH, the, uh, the Eigenisch Technische Hochschule in Zurich, uh, studying mathematics at the time, Topology was the hot topic in mathematics, and so that was where he found his love and his delight and where he focused. Interestingly enough, one of the developers of that field later was connected with Princeton, where Einstein obviously ended up at the Institute for Advanced Studies. And there was a, an invitation to my father to go over through Andrew Weil, uh, I believe it's the right name, um, to go and visit and to be a, a member of the Institute. So when he arrived in 1941, after a very strenuous trip across the oceans, he arrived and customs opened the bags and were talking to my parents and looked down and said, where are you going, Princeton? And my father said, yes. And customs agent said, oh, well, that, that's where Einstein is. Welcome to the country. Come on in. And uh, closed up the bags and sent them on their way. It's interesting, though. You know, this was a, a, a difficult time in the world. My father was fortunate. He was born in Alsace-Lorraine in Strasbourg, which was, at the time of his birth, German. But after the First World War, which was 1916, that uh, was when he was born. But after the First World War, it became French. So even though that late in the war, 1941, when they were trying to get out of, the, out of Switzerland, out of Europe, and get to the States, 
The German quota was filled. There was no more room for Germans to come over. My father being born in Strasbourg, they looked at that and said, oh, Strasbourg is French, so you can come in on the French quota. If this is apocryphal or family lore, I don't know, but it's the way the story has always been told. And they traveled across Vichy, France, and through Spain and into Portugal, where they were meant to pick up the ship in Lisbon. Because of delays along the way, they missed the ship and required, were required to wait two weeks before the next one. And it was one of the last ships to leave Europe to come across um, a trans transatlantic crossing on a ship that was designed for Mediterranean travel only had more people aboard than were meant to, it was meant to carry. My parents sleeping downstairs below decks in hammocks where the rats were. So everybody ran up to the decks to find places to sleep on the decks outside. And when the rains came, everybody scurried to clean up their bedding materials. And then they had to fight once again for a place up on deck. As they're pulling into the Havana port, Cuba was still open at the time, all of a sudden the ship turned around and the rumors spread through the ship. Oh my God, the United States has entered the war and we're being sent back. It wasn't true. The U.S. would enter the war six months later in December of 41. But you can see that the thought of going back to Europe after having made this crossing was terrifying. And so when they finally arrived in New York, they were thrilled and delighted I have family in New York as well who sponsored my father, became a sponsor in the States, which would provide, if need be, for his well-being to make sure he wasn't a, a drain on the state. This is, this is such a typical story of Isn't that it? period of time because I could say the same for my family. This is uh, just an extraordinary moment in history. Please, please continue. No, I think I, I think you're right, and I think what you've touched on is the fact that very few people today, except people of our generation, understand what that was really like. There's so many young people for whom this is distant, ancient history. And I know that when my mother passed away, uh, which she did in 2003, it felt as though a door had closed on the stories and the history. She has a younger sister, younger by 16 years, who's still alive. And Karin and I still talk about this and share family stories and histories and things, and my cousin as well over in Switzerland. But yeah, I think you're right. This was a, a story that many of us lived, and we carry with us these histories and these stories. And I'm glad that there are still those of us around to, to remind people of this. And the languages they spoke. Yes. Uh, in, in our group, we had five different languages. Uh, so it, it was just a very interesting time. Pl please continue your journey. I'm sorry that I interrupted. No, hardly. I think this uh, is exactly the point of why this story matters, is that it is a shared story. This shared story is one that uh, many of us have, and, and I think it's, uh, it's important to remember. So this idea that my parents arrived as refugees immediately were thrown into this environment of this incredible this incredible sort of this this brain trust in Princeton with all these people that had come from Europe Einstein and Polly and all these other folks that kind of were had come over to the, the states my, my parents became very good friends uh, with Einstein's chief assistant 
the Bargmans and uh, Sonia and Valya Bargman, who were his, uh, Einstein's right-hand man. And so this became part of the family lore. Erdos was, t my parents talked about this, and all the mathematicians at the time, it was just, so when I was growing up, I kept hearing stories of people, and it, I think it kind of put me in this frame that, you know, the world is filled with these remarkable people who are just people. I, I gave me a way of looking at the world that is, uh, I, I'm very thankful for, because it means that when I meet people or I've performed for Nobel laureates or folks like this, it's, um, I feel comfortable in that environment. Years ago, I was sitting in New York in my loft after moving to New York, when my brother was visiting and a, a schoolmate of his, Neil deGrasse Tyson, is sitting in my loft talking about this. Who knew where this was going to go down the road? So the beginnings of the stories don't always reveal where they're going to end up. There are usually the gems and the, you know, the seeds of these stories developed there. My parents traveled around the states from Princeton to Laramie, Wyoming, to Syracuse, New York, to Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where I was born. And then between Ann Arbor and Princeton, back and forth, my parents were going. So that was my early life. My parents separated when I was very young uh, and eventually divorced. My father remarried. And my mother followed him between Ann Arbor and Princeton so that I would be close to my father and finally moved back to Ann Arbor when I was in hmm, fourth grade. And then my father moved on to Stanford and my mother said, we're not, we're not leaving again. We're sticking here in Ann Arbor. And so that's where I grew up. I grew up in Ann Arbor uh, throughout high school, spending summers with my dad in California. Did you go to a public high school? I did. Uh, I went to public schools throughout the entire time. You had, uh, I see that you had a great interest in math at the time. Yes, you know, this is um, coming from this academic family. There was this, uh, surrounded by people in academia, people who were in various fields, but at a very high level, there was an expectation, I'm sure, f that was not spoken, but definitely was there, that I would continue in this field somewhere, either in the sciences or some form of academia. Interestingly enough, I didn't end up there. But you went off to uh, college. What did. college did you go to? I ended up going to Stanford. It was actually, believe it or not, less expensive for me to go there because of tuition waivers since my father was teaching there. I had to qualify to get in, but still, it was actually less expensive than staying and going to a public state school at U of M in Ann Arbor, which was another choice for me. Was your dad still teaching at Stanford? He was, yes. Uh, luckily, during my freshman year, he was on sabbatical, so he was out of town. So I had free run and free reign to live a normal life during that time period. Uh, yeah, so throughout high school, it was all advanced placement courses and doing theater and playing music. I played trumpet at the time. I was doing junior theater. I was uh, helped found a magic club, uh, first in junior high school and then throughout high school. Wait, let's, let's back up for a second. A magic club. So your interest <laughs> in magic started in high school? It started when I was six. Ah. I have this strong memory of my great aunt. So through my grandparents and my great-grandparents, there was this connection with a company called the uh, Mattel Gesellschaft, 
a big, very, became a very important company in Europe. And there were three brothers who basically were part of the instrumental founding of this. And this is the Hochschild family. And there was a branch that came to the U.S. service for uh, outreach in South America and in England and in Germany. And this was the sponsor that was taking care of my father, guaranteeing the family here in the States. And the Hochschild Foundation has always been supportive. The Hochschilds end up with this beautiful estate up in the Adirondacks in Blue Mountain Lake. There were three children that were cousins to my grandmother. And there was Gertrude and Walter and Harold. And, and uh, so Harold Hochschild founded the museum that's the Adirondack Museum in Blue Mountain Lake. He was also did a lot of work with uh, sort of he was connected in many ways to the government and the war effort in many ways about this. So the sister, Gertrude, was my great aunt. I guess that's her official position. And I remember at Christmas when I was six being up in this, the camp, they called it, which was this beautiful setting up in, on Eagle Lake uh, in a little town in this area called Eagle Nest. And I unwrapped this box, and the box was a box of magic tricks. And I was thrilled. I was, I was ecstatic. And then I started reading through them, and I realized that they were all tricks. It wasn't real magic. I was devastated. I was so upset. I pushed it back, and I said, you got the wrong set. Uh, and so I think that I kind of had this blossoming interest in magic ever since then, kept looking for things, started going down to the blue front where they cleverly put the magic tricks next to the, um, the adult magazines. So, And the blue front was what? The blue front was the local cigar store and local bookshop and magazine store and catch-all in Ann Arbor. And uh, going there was this, this great event for mine. I'd sort of look over the magic tricks and avoid looking at the girly magazines. Uh, and when I was 11, I remember that, uh, I remember that in a, when I was 11, there was a magician who came to our school, uh, elementary school. And at a recent reunion back there, I went and I stood on that very stage where he had performed, and I thought, wow, this is where it all began. Because he stood on the stage, and I remember specifically two effects that he did. I remember he did the Loda, Inexhaustible, Inexhaustible Waters of India, and he did the Serpent Silk. Well, the Loda, just explain what the Loda is the to Loda is a, um, it's a vase. Uh, there were times it was ceramic, sometimes it's metal. It's uh, kind of looks like a spittoon almost. It's kind of that shape and size. Uh, and the magician will pick it up and walk over and pour out all the water that's inside this vase until it's completely empty, turning it completely upside down and dumping it out. Sets it down again and then goes back later and calls upon the, the waters of India and picks up the vase again and walks over. And once again, it's filled with water. This is repeated throughout the show. Uh, it keeps coming back inexhaustible and just inexplicable. And the serpent silk was a silk handkerchief that was displayed, grabbed by a diagonal corners and rolled into kind of a tube or a little snake out of this. And he would then tie it into a knot. And holding it by one corner, 
the knot would start to move, the silk would start to move, and it would literally untie itself and return itself to just an untied state. And I went, how is this happening? Okay, I know it's tricks. I'm completely fooled. I have no idea how any of this stuff works. So I went home and I turned to my mother and I said, Mom, I understand that this all tricks. I'm, you know, I'm a wise beyond my years now. So, but I really want to learn how to do this. She reached out to a friend of hers in the university community and brought me a book, which I was thrilled by. I still have it. A book called Modern Magic. By Hoffman? By Hoffman. Written in 1890. You realize that we're now talking about, you know, 1960. So, um, it's, it's, I look back on this and I just go, wow. Uh, and the book was filled with explanations and how to, how to do, uh, create a, a box that would, you could then produce things from. And so I built a small table in my basement out of, out of orange crates and covered it with, with curtains that were tucked away in the corner uh, and started doing little magic shows in my basement. Sounds familiar, like Doesn't a familiar it? story, yes. <laughs> I think many of us began in this way. Uh, and so this, uh, this began when I was, so, like I said, about 11. And moving on to junior high school, I formed a little magic club and found friends that were interested in magic as well. And then in high school, I found others that had come from other junior high schools as we got together. And these, so we had this wonderful club and found a sponsor who was a, a professor who was in chemistry and uh, worked at Los Alamos in the summers on nuclear research down there. Uh, and he was a, a man named Charles Rolfs, and Charles Rolfs was a magic historian and collector. Uh, it turns out that a, a friend of mine who I made later on was actually during this time period was in college at the University of Michigan doing magic. I had no idea. What did I know about college and U of M? And that's a man named Charles Reynolds. And Charlie Reynolds became the advisor to Doug Henning for all of his TV shows. Uh, so these little weaving together of stories and paths or near misses. I ended up dating Charles Rolfe's daughter, who was a year ahead of me in high school. That wasn't the only reason I was interested in and her was to get access to her father's secrets. No, no. There was real love there. Uh, so, and these are the early, you know, the early romances and his fascinations with magic and also the arts in general while still pursuing an academic career. As I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to go into physics or mathematics or something. And I ended up going out to Stanford and enrolled in this advanced physics program and by the end of the first year, I looked around and I went, you know, this was a lot of work for me, and there are guys here who are really smart. I mean, really smart, for whom physics is poetry, who can look at these ideas, they make sense to them at a basic internal level, and then they take and they develop and they play with these ideas and they make these delightful advances things come to them in an easy way and i realized that wasn't me it was well, that's quite extraordinary that you were so centered at the time that you were on a path and was willing to question that path and make a change i think that's extraordinary it was uh, it was distressing to do that uh, i 
I actually dropped out of college for a quarter. There's other reasons for that as well. I was going back to Ann Arbor during summers, uh, and I had friends back there. We had had a little band. Uh, it was kind of a Tijuana brass band kind of sound back in high school, uh, playing other things as well, called the Leaves of Grass. And... Uh, and so when I was back in the summer after that first year of college, my friend said, well, we're going to Oberlin. Come to Oberlin. It's not far away, you know. You'll be able to get a job down there, and we'll form a band. We'll do that. And, of course, I decided to try that, and uh, no band formed. They were busy with their schoolwork. I was working in a steel foundry, uh, which was definitely an education. Yeah, you knew you didn't want to go into uh, steel production. Uh, yeah. It's funny, I started out sorting gaggers, and gaggers are these metal, bent metal uh, rebar that are used to reinforce sand molds and these things. It was so filthy that you would come home and you were black through the clothing you were wearing. They realized I had some brains and I uh, was quick on the uptake, and so I advanced quickly through there. Within the month or so that I was there, I ended up running the uh, Bessemer furnace. It was a big electronic resistance furnace, electric resistance, but that was melting tons of steel. I remember loading it all by hand, multiple four tons of steel into this little thing, and I'm going, boy, that's a lot of work. Uh, when, they, when they found out I was leaving, which I decided pretty quickly I was going to do, uh, they tried to convince me to stay. They thought it would be a good idea, and I went, no. Uh, it wasn't the only reason I decided to leave. The draft board had decided that I was going to be 1A as well. So this was during the time of the war in Vietnam when the draft was dragging people across. Uh, a 2S deferment, 2S meaning student deferment, uh, was granted to those of us that were in college uh, the minute I dropped out of college, I lost that 2S deferment, and I became uh, 1A. Uh, I went back to school. And which school did you go back to? I went back to Stanford. Um, the dorm that I'd been in the first year, Branner, was uh, no longer available to me. I needed to find a place to stay. I had friends that were staying at this. Uh, it was a fraternity that had been kicked out of the Nationals because of their... Well, they they became the drug house on campus, but that wasn't why they got kicked out of the National. They got kicked out of the National because they decided to integrate. So it became a political and uh, a socially uh, aware fraternity uh, that turned into the the really sort of the, the wild and arts place on campus. Uh, there was no room for me at that when I arrived in the winter of, uh, let's see, that must have been 68... This winter of, of 69, the beginning of that. And uh, so I ended up camping outside, set up a tent in the backyard, ran an extension cord so I had some... It's California. I mean, hey, dude, you know? Really? Exactly. <laughs> I worked in the kitchen. I lived on the back lawn. I had my VW van. It was perfect. Uh, I also applied for a, uh, uh, a conscientious objector status at the time. Uh, friends of mine from high school, one of uh, the father of one of my good friends was on the city council and wrote me a supporting letter because I had been involved in anti-war activities and I'd been very much involved with the Quakers at the time earlier on. 
so I was granted CO status. I never was required to serve. Uh, down the road, the lottery came into play, and I ended up with a high lottery number, but I could well have been over there not carrying a gun. So now you're in college, camping out. You're still a, a physics major, and you're thinking about going into the theater department? Yeah, I kind of meandered through trying to keep it more academic, so uh, I kind of worked out of physics and uh, into philosophy for a while, so there was a pretty deep dive into that. Phenomenology and Husserl and you know Merleau-Ponty and Kant and Hegel and all those guys. Um, and eventually I found my way into the theater department. It, it's interesting because relating this to ending up originally, uh, eventually in magic, originally that interest grew and through high school grew. And when I hit college, I really, it was, it was a, I stepped back from the magic. Uh, I couldn't understand why I was doing it. There was a part of me that said the government was doing a better job of fooling people than I could do. Oh, they're still doing that. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out why it was that I would want to have people enjoy being fooled. I didn't want them to walk away from a show going, hey, I have no idea how that worked. I love not understanding. I wanted the magic to eventually be about something where they understand more about their lives or the world, that the magic just becomes this medium. It's a, a way of talking about things, yeah. exactly. Just like a painter uses paints and a canvas, we use these physical actions. Uh, I've, I've contended for a long time that magic is one of the only art forms that doesn't exist. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. An author creates a book. He writes a book. The book has a physical presence. There is a book. It's really there. Uh, a dancer creates a dance. There are these bodies moving in space. It's a real dance. And the dance exists. A painter, a painting. Musician, there's the melody and the music that happens in there. But for a magician, we just push stuff around. There is no magic until there's an audience. The only time that magic actually exists, comes into being, is when somebody sees something and experiences it as magic. Yes, magic only happens in your mind. It does. Yes, that's an interesting view, mm -hmm. and I have that same view. So please continue. So this was this, I, this period of time when I'm in college, I'm involved in anti-war activities and demonstrations and looking at the magic and feeling that it's really hmm why am i why am i promoting this idea this enjoyment of not understanding so there became this shift the magic started to find its way into both political theater uh, and involvement in the theater community in stanford and eventually moving myself into the theater department at the same time, as I said, there's political activity that's going on, occupying of buildings, marching and demonstrations, all the stuff that many of us uh, went through during that time period. And it wasn't a, wasn't a good time to be in college except for that, but 
as far as getting a real education in college, mm, kind of put a strain on that. It made it more difficult in many ways for a more classical education. So I meandered through philosophy and ended up in theater as a way of creating things. I finally came to this point where I realized that in physics I would end up doing all this work and probably never benefiting anybody. My work would just sort of support existing things since it wasn't, I didn't think it was going to be innovative. So I looked at the theater and I went, well, you know, you can actually make a difference in people's lives. You can bring them to experience things that will resonate and they will remember for a long time, will have an impact on who they are and what they do. And I finally decided that if I could work in front of an audience and impact one or two people in that audience, that was, that was where I wanted to put my energy. And so that's where I ended up doing that. And then doing work in experimental theaters, I said, and doing all this work, and I graduated from college 71. And that fall, headed over to Europe with my college girlfriend, and she and I headed to Poland to see Grotowski. This was the area of Jeffrey Grotowski and Peter Brook and the sort of, sort of very influential European directors creating theater collectives in ways. Now, uh, did you graduate college with a theater I degree? Did. Yes. Yeah. So now you're taking your experience to Europe and you're going to try to get maybe influenced in other directions. Yeah, experience what's going on over there and what's happening in theater, maybe studying over there if the opportunity presents itself, sort of th um, really throwing myself into the culture of Europe. And we bought a car, and this was winter, I understand. So we're traveling starting in January in 1972. We're, we're traveling throughout Europe. We buy a car in Switzerland through f help from the family. They point us to the used car lots. And then we headed into northern Italy and across northern Italy into Venice, and then from Venice up into Austria and Vienna and finding magic and magicians and theater through Yugoslavia first and then up to there. Uh, it was still Yugoslavia at the time. Uh, and then from Vienna up through Czechoslovakia and into Poland. In Poland in like February. Uh, and uh, my grandmother passed away at the time and we ended up back in Zurich. Uh, for a part of this time as well. Um, but we ended up with this whole journey that traveled us through these amazing areas into Prague when it was still um, part of the Czech, you know, the Republic. This is Dubček was in this, and Dubček had been thrown out by then. Um, and passing through, we got a chance to speak with the Czechs. Uh, and one guy took us home because our car broke down. and put us up and he spoke no English we spoke no Czech so we were using an English Czech and a, and a uh, sorry an English German and a, and a Czech German dictionary and we were speaking in sort of really pidgin German throughout this whole time and he shows us shows us uh, a cartoon because he'd become very involved so the Czechs had become when Dubček was involved it was very progressive very much in the arts very much in forward thinking how you can use this um, communist structure is a way that would promote arts and promote people and really not have it be an authoritarian regime but try to develop and sort of moving towards democratic socialism as opposed to true uh, socialist states. Um, and then the Russians came in. Prague Spring. Kicked Dubček out. So there's this wonderful 
little cartoon that he'd saved of the Russians and their tanks rolling through Czechoslovakia, little caption that says, we have come to show you how to make beer from your grapes. That's uh, very innovative. Yeah. And the theater we saw, and I realized, I realized that there was, in seeing theater in Czechoslovakia at the time, it, there was some great theater, even though we understood almost none of it verbally, visually it was strong and striking. And you realize that in times of repression, when you are not allowed to say things directly, you find ways to say them that are symbolic or implied or clever or humorous. Wasn't that what opera did? It was mostly a political statement that yeah. they could surround with song and exactly. dance. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, I like to think of the phrase of Norman Lear. Norman Lear is the guy who did All in the Family with all the Archie Bunker comedy that was involved on that. And people said, well, you're liberal. Why are you doing this show about this redneck? And he said, you know, you can say anything you want to as long as you package it between two laughs. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. And I realized that that was true about magic as well, that almost any form of theater, you can, as you, if you have delight or laughter, it opens people's hearts, opens their minds, and allows you to sort of drop in little concepts. So now we're in Europe and you've developed a like for their theater mm -hmm. and you're kind of growing into who you are. Mm -hmm. And now your magical career is starting. Yeah, the magic is interesting there. We're in Amsterdam. We, <clears throat> I get a chance to go to Hank Vermaden's studios and, uh, and I, I, I met Tommy Wonder at the time. And, you know, we're in England and I get to go and meet... Uh, Alan Allen and uh, just just for our audience yes. uh, I'd like to say that Tommy Wonder was probably one of the great thinkers of magic in our time zone yes and a creator in a way of of uh, the the Dutch often are interested in mechanical solutions and so Tommy had this this ability to create and these intricate and yet delightfully functional little parts and hidden pieces that allowed him to do things that were just amazing. He went to great lengths to uh, do a magical effect. As Teller says, uh, part of the reason magic works is that nobody believes that you would go to that much trouble to do something that's that simple. Yes, that's so true. <laughs> So, so continue in Amsterdam, please. So it's London and Amsterdam, and then eventually back to the States, and, uh, and then eventually to New York. My partner at the time, uh, my college girlfriend who became my partner in New York, we found a, a, a loft in New York, and we built it into it so we could live in it. It was one of those railroad flats, 15 feet wide, 75 feet long. There's no... Uh, AC electricity. It's an old sweatshop, so everything's being run through DC power in the place, which is great for lights. Not so good for things like refrigerators or alarm clocks or anything else, televisions. So we ended up having to tap into the fluorescent lights that were in the hallway in order to get uh, AC power. Stayed in that place until I finally left in the 90s when I I think the rent at the time I left it in the 90s was $325 a month, something like that. So uh, just this remarkable place. Uh, it is, actually was used in a Woody Allen film. Woody Allen uh, filmed one of the scenes in New York Stories in our loft.
Oh, when you had the loft? Yes. Oh, good. I'm glad they paid you for yes. that. Yes. The money we were paid uh, covered more than a year's rent. So, <laughs> like I said, the rent wasn't very high at the time. No, but, you know, at the time, it, was, it, was, it wasn't high when we look back. No. But at the time, it might have been a little higher uh, than we think now. Exactly. Uh, I paid $50 a month for my first apartment. Outrageous. Yeah, those days are gone. Yes, <laughs> it certainly are. By orders of magnitude, they're gone. Yeah. They're so, yeah, so now we're in New York. You're leaving your loft. So, yeah, so we've got the loft, and we're there, uh, you know, and I arrive in New York, and my, uh, my partner, uh, Barbara at the time, was, uh, was uh, trained in improvisational theater, the techniques of Viola Spolin. She worked with uh, Paul Sills in story theater. And, and there was a guy named Sheldon Patinkin who had come out of Chicago. He'd come out of Second City in Chicago uh, and was eventually went on to form uh, Second City in Toronto, which is where SCTV came out of. But for a while, he was in New York. And he was running an, an experimental theater, no, well, an improvisational theater troupe in New York. And so I enrolled in the classes and took part in plays like Waiting for Lefty and sort of this a political theater but improvisationally based work that happened in there. And so there I am coming out of this very sort of politically aware background and I arrive in New York and I think, okay, theater, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do theater. And, and you realize when you hit New York that there are a lot of people there to do theater. And of the at the time, of the equity members, of the equity members in New York, 90% of them made less than $5,000 a year. And of the 10% that made more than $5,000 a year, 90% of those people made it doing commercials. And I looked at that and I went, that means that the way to make money in theater in New York is to do commercials? Man, I haven't gone through all these years of hard work and training to sell somebody else's ideas. And so I realized that the magic was paid. People paid magicians to work. Uh, and I had, oh, there's another sort of backside of this, but I decided that then it really was going to be that we would create our own theater. Magic would be involved in this. Theater would be involved in this. And uh, I had a, a cousin and between Barbara and Rick Poole and myself, we formed a little theater company that we were going to take in up to upstate New York. Again, connected with the Adirondack Museum up there through Harold Hochschild. They offered us a staff house. We put together a company of 10 people and took these 10 people up into the Adirondacks to do shows in all the towns up through the Adirondacks. Um, and we were looking at the schedule and realized that the first town we were going into had seen the melodrama we were going to do, and they'd had that come through the year before, and we were concerned that we wouldn't be able to sell tickets. And we thought, well, what, will we, what can we do? And I said, well, let's do a magic show. And so I had a troupe of 10 people and got to put together this fabulous magic show with a full cast. And we came back from that, and very successful for us doing our, our two major shows, the melodrama and another drama that was there, uh, happened in there, uh, and the magic show. And it was a great successful run. We worked through the Arts Center in Blue Mountain Lake. We worked through all the areas. 
uh, Little Long Lake and Boyceville and all these places up through that area. I came back after a very fun and grueling summer, but delightful summer, and said, what am I going to do in New York? And, uh, and found that I, uh, I went on an audition for a children's theater that was looking for magic. And I thought, well, I can help. I can design. And so I ended up being hired to create the magic for Pinocchio that was touring out of New Orleans through a group called Project Educational Theater. In 10 weeks, we performed for 80,000 kids. That's a lot of laughing, clapping, and screaming. They would take these big auditoriums. They'd bus in the schools from the area, do the show. They'd bus in another group. We'd do the show. We'd pack up. We'd move to a new location, all based out of New Orleans, but we would travel around. And so I got to see theater. I got to see New Orleans. I got to see the South. It was fabulous. It was absolutely great. Uh, and came back to New York and uh, ended up realizing that this was going to be kind of where I needed to be. Uh, I ended up working for Holland America Cruises for a while as a sales assistant. It's the only straight job I think I would had in those early years. Uh, it, we hit an oil crisis. They laid off everybody. I was the new hire, so they kept me on for a while. I was cheap. And I worked for them long enough until I was able to collect unemployment. That unemployment and getting involved with a magic townhouse in New York was kept me alive when I was in New York in those early years as we started putting together the shows that we were going to take to colleges and universities, which is what we started doing. And that is where I met Jeff McBride at one of the college booking conferences that was up in the Catskills. They were doing it up there. And uh, Jeff was just a kid. He was 17 or something, 16. And we're hanging out in one of these little after-sales after event parties. And we start doing magic for all the other guys that are in the room. The college students are there. And I'm older than them. And he's this young squirt of a kid. And, and he starts feeding me coins and stuff and helping me do some stuff. And I'm doing the same thing for him. And I went, I like this guy. I really like this guy. Uh, I also met a young woman named uh, Marcella Rook, Marcella Rubble Rook, who turned to me and she was doing, uh, she did tarot and, and palm reading and series of other things. She said, and she was from Chicago, she said, I have a friend in Chicago that you would really like to meet. I said, who's that? She said, Eugene Berger. And so these early times, these early years have led to friendships that have lasted a lifetime. And it's through... Jeff and Eugene that we met, that you and I met through at, uh, at, at one of the mystery schools when you were so connected and did so much to help Jeff on those mystery schools. You made it possible for him. And that's where I met Karen, my partner, Karen St. Pierre. Well, magic really does happen at magical conventions. It sure does. So now that you've met uh, some famous magicians and you've, you've had a career that uh, has taken you around the world with your magic, you've worked on cruise ships, you've worked in theaters, you've worked in comedy clubs. Uh, in fact, you have a weekly, you're kind of part of a group of four or five people who have put together a magic show once a week in New York City called Monday, Monday Night, Night Magic. magic. 
please tell us a little more about your magical career. There's this long history in New York of magical places. Uh, one of the first ones, the place that I first started working at, and I began in like 1974, 75, was the Magic Townhouse, and that's where I met Wesley James and Al Cooper and Slidini, Tony Slidini, of famous, if you Google him up there, you'll see him on the Dick Cavett Show and other piece places. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. Derek Dingle, again, Google Derek's name up there, and you'll see these wonderful, wonderful people. Frank Garcia came in there. Jack London came in there. Lenny Greenfader came in there. Um, you know, this these were just amazing, wonderful people that were there. I, it was run uh, by Dick Brooks and Dorothy Dietrich, who now have a place in Pennsylvania, the uh, Houdini Theater that's there, and they've done a lot to restore the Houdini grave and restore the bust into places. Anyway, so big magic community. So the Magic Townhouse was formed in New York in the early 70s, and I worked there as a resident magician until um, the cruise company, Holland America Cruises, where I'd actually worked for a short bit of time, um, came and saw me work and said, we'd like to have you work on the World Cruise. And I went, you got to be kidding me. You're just seeing me do close-up magic here. They said, no, you do colleges. I said, well, yeah. They said, well, I'm sure you'll be fine. And so that was the beginning of 17 years of working on cruises. Between cruises and colleges, I was on the road ooh, nine or ten months out of the year. Not not continuously, but broken up into two, three-week sections. A run out to do this, a trip to Alaska, a trip to uh, Hong Kong, a whatever. So the colleges were there, and uh, eventually the Magic Townhouse kind of faded. Uh, one of the people who had worked there began another place, a man named Imam, delightful man, really, and great magician. And he founded a place on Carmine Street called Mostly Magic, 55 Carmine Street, and many people performed there, lots and lots of folks. Uh, it was actually there that I first met David Copperfield when Imam came running down to the basement and, and went... Peter, Peter, you're not going to believe who's here. I said, well, who is it, Imam? And he said, it's David Copperfield. I said, why is he here? He's here to see you. I went, okay. Has he heard about something? And uh, it was after that, after that evening, that the man who had brought him there, a guy named Gary Olay, called me and said, David really likes your snowstorm piece. He'd love to, uh, to be able to use it. And I went, oh, David, I mean, Gary, for David, uh, uh, that's difficult because it's my signature piece and I've done it on television and it's, uh, uh, can I have a little time to think about it? And he said, oh, okay, all right. Uh, so this is sort of, here, here you have some inside baseball now for the magic community. So one of the things that happens is that people see other people doing things. The inspiration for my snowstorm piece that I did. It's a snowstorm is a is a piece where you have um, a, a large sheet of tissue paper that you tear up into little pieces and soak it in water, uh, and then squeeze out the water, and then from those wet torn pieces comes this cloud of dry confetti, these little floating pieces, and it's known as the snowstorm in China. It's meant to actually represent the, the petals from the cherry blossoms that fall off the trees in this great profusion. It's a beautiful piece. And I first saw Vito Lupo perform this in his part of his Perot act at a little club on Long Island. And I think that that's really where, since he was always working in a spotlight, although he never visually took this idea of the circular globe, seeing it in that, I placed that image in my mind and, and when Jamie Swiss's 
ex-wife, Wendy, said, oh, it's about a snow globe. I went, it is. And at that point, I remembered that on my father's desk, he'd always had a snow globe, and I'd always been fascinated by it. And so that became my signature piece, this idea of talking about the f that on his desk was this globe, and it was filled with water, and inside was a wintry scene, and when you shook it up, there was a snowstorm, and that I always wanted to get inside. So this became the framing for the, the piece. Uh, that's what David saw, and it moved him and fascinated him, and he, I guess, uh, hesitated in actually getting my permission to do my presentation. So a friend of his, Mike Caveney, recounted to David the story of when Mike was a kid, would travel to Wisconsin, fly into Chicago, and then drive up north. Uh, and as they drove north on this one particular time, the snow was vanishing from the ground to the point that there was no snow. And they were there to celebrate Christmas, and Mike was very upset about this. And in the middle of the night before on Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas, his mother woke him up and took him outside. And in the middle of the night, it had begun to snow. And so on Christmas Eve, there was this beautiful snowstorm. So David goes, well, that's great. I can do that because we used to go down to Florida. So that became his story of never seeing snow until one year he spent Christmas time period uh, in New Jersey. And that was the evolution of that. Uh, he and then Kevin James another friend of mine, created this, uh, started doing snow with these snow animators, which actually I think was Copperfield's original idea. Uh, and then Kevin was put into, was pressured into using the snow animators as well, uh, these big machines that would create these, this filling an auditorium with, it's sort of fake snow, it's artificial snow, but it's just, it's just like little soap bubbles that seem to be snow coming down, but they don't remain, they don't, mark anything, there's no stains, they sort of they just vanish. And so this has taken this idea from Vito to me to Copperfield to Kevin James. Well, this is uh, a, a story for all of us that we take things uh, from our careers and we look at it and analyze it, but the, the most important thing is we try to make it our own. A trick is a trick. But we try to encapsulate it with something with meaning, to, to put a presentation around it that uh, can grip people, that can take them to a place that doesn't exist and keep them there for a little while. Which is why when I do Gypsy Thread, an old classic piece of magic in which you take a, a piece of thread off a spool and you break it into pieces and then you roll the pieces into a little ball and then pull on the ends and it's restored. Uh, what took me a while to understand what it was about was that it was about relationships for me. Uh, our friend Eugene Berger used to do it talking about the cosmos and how Shiva would destroy it. Yes, right. and destroy the world and then put it all back together, together again. again. Yes, Eugene is no longer with us, but uh, yes, uh, he remains in our hearts. He was really uh, not only a great magician, but really quite an interesting person. Uh, a wonderful human being. An inspiration. Oh, yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so let, let, let us go a little further now. Uh, I, I'd like to get back to uh, your Monday Night Magic sure. uh, that you've uh, put together with a few other people. Maybe tell us about the origins and what actually goes on at Monday Night Magic. Great idea. Out of the 
Magic Townhouse grew Mostly Magic. When Mostly Magic closed up, my friend Michael Chout uh, called me up and said, you know, we don't have any place in New York where people can go on a regular basis to see magic. There were no shows. The Playboy Club had closed up, uh, which is one of the venues that used to be there. Harry Blackstone Jr. came through and performed there, and I actually... So, yes, it's where friendships develop. Uh, and so Michael called me up and asked me about this, and I said, well, yeah, what's, what, what's your idea? He said, well, I'd like to start a, 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 a new thing called Monday Night Magic. I said, that's a great idea. He said, yeah, our friend John Lenahan in London has begun doing it on Monday nights. Theaters are dark. <clears throat> it's possible for us to uh, take over and use a theater on Monday nights, which means that we don't have to own it or rent it on a regular basis just on that one night a week. And, and theaters are delighted to be able to fill that night with an event because it's dark and they are not making money on their thing. I said, well, that's a very interesting idea. We began doing it once a month. And then we realized that we needed to do it on a weekly basis. And it wasn't just me. It wasn't just Michael. I was thrilled that Michael had called me on this. Um, but there were other people that he'd called. One of his close friends was a, a man named Frank Brentz. Frank Brentz was a fabulous magician. Um, I had worked with him on cruise ships. I would always follow him on cruise ships. For some reason, I was always a, a couple weeks behind him on the ship as we would move from ship to ship. And I would hear great tales about the wonderful magic he would do. And eventually, he and I got to sit and be together. And because of Michael, who was a friend of Frank's, um, Michael brought together Frank and myself. He said, is there anybody else? And I suggested Jamie, Jamie Ian Swiss, to join us as well. Jamie Ian Swiss is a, also a very well-known uh, writer of magical exactly. books and uh, performing magician. Exactly, who was originally from New York, who was my longest time friend in magic. And I had met him in New York years ago uh, where he had wanted to make sure that we uh, had a, uh, a chance to develop a friendship, which we did. So I had recommended Jamie, who now lives in San Diego. And I'd recommended Jamie, and Jamie had recommended a person that we met at Mostly Magic, a man named Todd Robbins. So there were the five of us, Michael Chout, Frank Brentz, myself, Jamie Ian Swiss, and Todd Robbins. And we are the core of Monday Night Magic. F we lost Frank a couple years ago, unfortunately. He was a bit older than us. Frank, a fabulous magician. When you say you lost him, he passed he away. He passed away, exactly. Uh, you will find him on, uh, on British television. You'll find he was one of the first uh, black magicians to perform in Paris. Uh, did the thing on Technicolor Doves and Where Do the Ducks Go and was just one of the first magicians to work in short sleeves. Um, great magic, great technique, wonderful personality, split fans and car classical magic with a sense of humor and a, a sensation. I, it was just great. It was just terrific. Uh, as many magicians find, as you get older, it becomes more difficult to find places to work since they tend to want the younger and the brighter and the little stars. I benefited from that when I was a kid, when I was much younger. Um, now I, I'm on the tail side of that. So I, the challenges now come from the other side. But So Frank was less able to travel and less able to perform and as often as he did. So the involvement with Monday Night Magic became 
a core part from his life and his connection with the magic. And he was always thinking, even up till the month before he died, he was working on new material and new routines and was always cutting edge. He was, he was really a wonderful man. So here, this is 1997 that Michael has contacted me and said, shall we start this thing? And I said, yes. And so we have been going now since 1997, which brings us into our 22nd year at this point. Well, that's extraordinary uh, for a magic show, uh, a weekly magic show to last in New York City for so long. And the show pretty much changes every week. We've had guest performers from around the world We've hosted close to 500 different performers over the course of that time, and we've seen people go from being ushers in our show to headlining our show. We've had folks like Ossie Windis come out of there, Matt Holtzclaw's come out of there, Ben Nemzer is now working for us, Jason Saran is doing this stuff that happens in here. Uh, uh, there's just a, this, it, it becomes this, Mm. This little fomenting of magic interest and delight. and uh, When people, when famous magicians pass through New York, that's a venue that they like absolutely. to perform at. Johnny Thompson has come and performed for us. Johnny yeah. Thompson is also a very well-known magician in the magical world. Absolutely. You know, um, yeah, it's just remarkable how many folks come through. Europeans and people from other parts of the states that come through. Where, where is the theater located uh, for Monday Night Magic? Right now we're at the Players Theater, which is uh, 115 McDougal Street. It's between Bleecker and West 3rd on McDougal. You've been in a, a range of theaters. I uh, think six or seven of uh-huh, them. I, I think I've performed in three of them. I think you did. Uh, but uh, <laughs> tell us the names of the theaters, if you could, uh, and uh, the first theater was the most interesting. The Sullivan the fa- Street Theater. Yes, I, I remember that very uh, It was delightful. It obviously was on Sullivan Street. It was also the home of the Fantastics. The Fantastics is a show, a theater show, that ran for 40 years, which I think must have been a little consternation for the landlord because when he rented the theater to the company, he signed a run-of-show rental agreement. Forty years later, I'm sure that they had made some modifications to it. I can't believe they kept the same rent for 40 years. But this was a, a, a great show and a great space that we had in there. So That was a wonderful little theater. It was almost a theater, not in the round, but a theater in 180 degrees. Absolutely. A little thrust stage that came out yes. there, a little raised platform where the piano was. And then you went from uh, Sullivan Street to... We've gone all over. We were way uptown on Broadway. It was part of Second Stage. It's now got a, a, a whole place on 42nd Street in Theater Row that's there. Uh, we were at the St. Clement's Theater for a while. We were down at the Soho Playhouse for a while. We were at the Bleecker Street Theater 80 and then Bleecker Street Theater. And uh, this theater where we are now, the Players Theater, is where Todd had run his show, Play Dead. This was the show that was directed by Teller co-authored between Todd and Teller and Johnny Thompson came in and did special effects for this and did a lot of the the illusion uh, consulting for this as well. Well, Todd is an interesting fellow also. He's a sideshow performer, basically. He is, and his specialty has been on that and sort of being very upscale sideshow as opposed to people covered with tattoos and, you know, piercings. That's not Todd at all. Oh, he's a sophisticated... Yes, Dapper, I think is the right word. Dapper would be a better word. Thank you. Absolutely. 
Uh, and but Todd still, in the course of wearing a three-piece suit and a beautiful tie and a, you know a stick pin, and, um, will do sword swallowing and eat glass and walk on broken glass and do the blockhead and. But a, but a knowledgeable magician as well. Uh, Explain what the blockhead is for our audience. Uh, the blockhead was a, a, a piece that was made famous by Melvin Burkhart, uh, again, in Sideshow fame. It's where you take a long, like a nine-inch nail, um, nine-penny, ten-penny nail, and you place it into your nose, and then you hammer it into your head uh, until it's pretty well seated all the way into your nose. Uh, without doing damage to yourself. Uh, uh, Todd goes a step further where he'll take a small uh, balloon, because who doesn't love balloon animals? And he inflates this little balloon partially, and then he will put it uh, up into his nose and then bring it back out th through his mouth. And it's, it's just the screams and the look on people's faces when they see this happening is... Um, so what's to die for? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. It is. It's amazing. Yes, the first time I saw him put a cigar out on his tongue, I... Ah. <laughs> Here's this well-dressed guy doing these wonderful and bizarre, and, and the first time I saw him eat a light bulb, it was like, what? Yes. You can't do that. Yes, well, he does. He and does. then he washes it down with Windex. Yeah, well, not, not really right. Windex, but uh, yeah. exactly. Winde appearing to be Windex. Exactly, it's what we think is. So tell me where Monday Night Magic uh, is heading now, and... Tell me a little about your plans with Monday Night Magic and your future. I, I, I think at the beginning of this, before we turned on the uh, mics, uh, we were discussing your thinking about uh, opening up something maybe in Phoenicia, New York. Well, that's an interesting idea. You know, one of the things that's happening around the country these days is this proliferation of venues that's happening. Obviously, there's Monday Night Magic in New York that we've been here now for 22 years. A uh, continuation of history of people who have gotten things going. We're just the longest running at this point. Of course, in Los Angeles is the Magic Castle. Uh, and then in San Francisco, there are a couple of places that happen up there. The Marrakesh Theater was there for quite a while. In Martinez, there is a small theater uh, that's now been going for 14 years that's there, which is the Cal Magic Dinner Theater or Cal Magic Club, California Magic Club, that's in Martinez, uh, open on the weekends, uh, serving dinner and shows. Uh, Chicago just now has this multi-million dollar new space, the Chicago Magic Lounge that's there. Um, if you think about this, there's also a new place that's being opened in California called Marvin's that's being headed by Jeff Hobson it's up there. There's uh, Milt Larson, who was the co-founder of the Magic Castle, has just opened a new place in Santa Barbara that's up and up there. So there are these places around the country that are happening and opening up here. Uh, in conjunction with that also, you'll find there are magic festivals that happen around, or magic conventions. There's the Genie Convention that's happening, Magic Live for many years. The International Brotherhood of Magicians, the IBM, has their annual or biannual convention. Same with the Society of American Magicians. And I was approached by uh, a man named Barry Kerr who has had this idea. He's connected with the Phoenicia Playhouse in Phoenicia, New York, which is out Route 28. Uh, and uh, obviously it's uh, in the Woodstock vicinity. And they have been doing for a while, they've been doing the Phoenicia Festival of the Voice that's been happening up there, becoming very well known. Yes, that's become very, very successful. Exactly. And I think Barry had a similar idea, 
that we could do something similar with magic. There had been some talk about doing magic in Woodstock several years ago, uh, and then that didn't happen. But Barry came to me and said, would we be able to do this? And I said, well, let's try. Let's see if we can get this up and running. And his idea is for it to become an annual festival. So this year, we're, this is 2019, we're looking at July, the end of July 2019, 26th, 27th, 28th, right in that range, um, that we'll be doing for the first annual and soon-to-be world-famous Phoenicia Festival of Magic. And uh, will that date uh, in July, will they try to keep the end of July uh, as a theme time uh, for the rest of the shows over the years? I certainly hope so. It feels like it's a very good window for it to be here. It's a time when we have a large number of tourists that are in the area. It's not in conflict with anything else. Uh, there's nothing else that really works. It's before we get into serious August time. Uh, so I think it's a, a good window, and we're we may end up having to make minor adjustments, but I'm hoping that we'll keep it there. Yes, I think uh, the market is bigger today in this area, in the Hudson Valley, because of the Airbnbs. Uh, years ago, there were maybe 20 rooms that you could rent in Woodstock, and now there's 840 wow. rooms. That many. Uh, well, uh, it's not an exact count, but right, there's right. a tremendous amount feeding the restaurants in the evening, the playhouse, and all the area amusements. I mean, this is a recreational area, so I, I think there's great potential for a yearly magic show. I'm happy to hear about that. Yeah. Uh, but before we uh, end our conversation, I'd like you to tell us uh, some, uh, maybe one or two stories in your travels of magic, something very interesting, either on the cruise ships or things that you've encountered at a different show, but something interesting in your career. The interesting thing about doing world cruises is that you often meet people that are uh, famous or unusual, and you get to go to places that are themselves fascinating. The first time I worked a world cruise was 1979. I believe it was the year later. It could have been, could have been the year after that. But I was on one of the world cruises, and I believe it was on the Rotterdam that was there. And I'm walking around. Now, you have to understand the world cruise is usually made up of old people. Well, actually, to be more accurate, it's old people and their parents. <laughs> so, <laughs> Old people and older people. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, that's they like to say, the average age is deceased. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I'm, I'm walking around this ship, and I realize there's somebody on the ship that none of these people are going to know, but I grew up with his writing, and it's Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein wrote Stranger in a Strange Land, and The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and was a science fiction writer that was right in that, in that beautiful uh, time that during the 60s was, you know, as we read about all this fabulous uh, stuff that was in Philip K. Dick's short stories that were coming out. He was the one who wrote... Uh, you do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep that eventually became Blade Runner, and he wrote, I mean... You have to grok his information. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Indeed. So there we are, and I'm up uh, I'm on this cruise with Heinlein, and so I end up having this conversation with him because nobody else on the ship knows who he is because he's a cultural hero of mine, and yet, you know, nobody uh, in, of an older age would really recognize it. And so we end up in this conversation, and he asks me to play Scrabble with him. 
Now, I have to tell you that that was a really remarkable experience to play Scrabble with somebody who is that verbal and that quick. He didn't do rewrites. He would do minor corrections in his writing, but he would basically write the books. Uh, I, I uh, kept in touch for a while with his wife, Virginia, uh, as they continued their travels. But the memory that sticks with me is coming into a port in Sri Lanka. Uh, and on the dock, as I watch, uh, Heinlein comes off the ship with Virginia, and meeting him on the dock is Arthur C. Clarke, uh, author of 2001 Space Odyssey and a bunch of other fabulous books. Um, and so here is this meeting of these titans on this little remote island you know, in the Indian Ocean, and I look at this stuff, and then Clark whisks him away by helicopter to his mountaintop resort in Candy. Uh, and all I can think of is I got to see this moment that's happening here. And the only other thing, well, there are many other stories, but I'll, I'll just leave you with this other little, little tidbit. Uh, on another cruise, world cruise, I'm traveling, and there's finally a group of younger people it's this larger group of, of people it turns out they're like 12 different people and they are off in the queen suite suites on the this on the qe2 and these things were going i think the suites were going for 130,000 a piece for the cruise something like that they had four of them uh two level suites balcony piano they you know you can sleep i think two people in the suite maybe three but they had four suites um and this was a, a, a family from Europe, from Paris. Uh, oil money, Arab oil money. Uh, and uh, so uh, we, they were very sweet and unpretentious and wonderful. Asked me to come up and perform. I did a private little show for them up in the Queen's Grill, you know. They went to tip me afterwards. I said, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to. And that was really great. And they, they did. And it was a $500 tip, which I have to say is the largest tip I've ever received in my life. Um, and then a couple months later, they were throwing a surprise birthday party in Paris and contacted my manager and said, we'd like to have Peter come over and entertain for this. And so they flew me over to Paris where I ended up staying at the Hotel L'Opera and in there and Alain Proust and Nicky Lauda and Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top is there, and there are all these amazing people that are part of this wealthy group over there. And uh, they asked me to stay on after the party for some other things, and more parties, and so the parties continue. And the night before I'm leaving, the next day to go to visit family in Switzerland, we're at this big party, and a, there's a woman standing there who's holding this little pastry, and, she's, and she smells the pastry, and she says, and she sniffs it and she says, is there anything, does this smell okay to you? And I lean down to smell it and she shoves it into my face with laughter and goes running off. And I go, this is just, okay, this is just one crazy party. On the train the next day, I'm traveling to Zurich and I look down and there's a Paris Match, one of the, the magazines there. And there's her picture on the cover of the Paris Match. And I, and I lean down and I say, excuse me, wh whose picture is that? They go, what, you mean the Princess Stephanie of Monaco? I go, oh, yeah, I was just at a party with her. I didn't know who she was. That's a so, great story. So, <laughs> it was this just, you know, so it, there were all these delightful pieces. Or, you know, years later in Russia when I'm performing there and we're part of the, we do a show at the Siemens Union because working on a ship and you're in Russia, 
you're considered a worker. So you don't need to have guides. You don't need to have visas. You can get off and travel, and they provide us the thing. So we decided to do a show for the Siemens Union. And some local magicians came. And this is early 80s. And I'd, had, I'd published a book a couple years earlier called Theatrical Close-Up. And one of the Russian magicians came up to me and said, I have a copy of your book. Would you sign it? I went, wow, how did you get a copy of my book here in Russia? But sure, I'd be happy to. So he brought out a Xerox copy of the book for me to sign because that's the only way he could get it is that he had a friend in England or someplace make a copy and send it to him. That's great. Well, you know, Peter, it it is fascinating uh, talking to you and hearing some of these stories. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you coming in and having a conversation with me today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Thank you.